Athanasius was born in 293 AD in the city of Alexandria. Much of his earlier life is unknown, but what is known is that he became a Christian sometime later in life. In 325 AD, he began his first official role serving the church as a deacon in Alexandria, serving under the bishop of Alexandria, his name being Alexander. 325 is a significant date. Uh, you were paying attention earlier. Uh, we read from the Nicene Creed of 325. It was in this year that the bishops got together and formulated this particular creed. While Athanasius was not um, involved in the forming of the creed, he was there as a witness. He heard the oral arguments from the bishop to bishop. He heard uh, all of the arguments and the historic significance that was formed there. The arguments for the deity of Christ were formed and shaped in his mind as he heard this particular creed hammered out. He rose to fame later in life and to historic significance when he himself took on the same false teacher that the bishops were seeking to correct there in Nicaea. Uh, this particular false teacher's name was Arius. Arius denied the deity of Christ. He denied that Jesus was fully God. And so Athanasius took him head on by writing a work called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. In this particular article that he wrote, he drew from what the, the bishops in Nicaea uh, sought to form, language that you and I use today about Jesus being true God from true God, true light from true light. In his work, he defended the true biblical doctrine of the person of Christ. He is remembered by saying, Athanasius contra Menunium, which means Athanasius against the world. He believed that he was so prepared to take on false doctrine that even if he stood alone, he would defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the bitter end. That is because if you lose Jesus, you lose the gospel. If you have an unorthodox view of Jesus, then you do not have the gospel. He rightly understood that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and our understanding of who Jesus was were intricately linked together. They could not be severed. If you deny certain aspects of who Jesus was, and particularly His sovereignty, then you lost all of the gospel. It is a reminder to each and every one of us that we will face dangers from within the church and from without the church. Arius himself was from within the church. Someone who was a leader, but one who denied Scripture and biblical doctrine. And by the grace of God, God raised up men like Athanasius who would be a defender of the truth. You know, it's, it's a reminder to each one of us that if you go wrong about Jesus, you go wrong with everything else. Friend, I wonder if you ever considered what is the work of a disciple? Would you consider the work that Athanasius did, that those in Milan took up, those bishops in forming, would you understand that to be the normative work of the Christian? 
that you and I are called to be heralders of the good news of Jesus Christ and to defend against all error that seeks to distort the gospel that we have been given the task to share? When you think about a disciple of Jesus, what tasks do you have in your mind? What are the responsibilities given to those who want to follow Jesus? Well, thankfully this morning our passage seeks to answer that particular question. What is the work of a disciple? Now, I want to remind you where we've been. We've begun a new section here in Luke's Gospel. And we find Jesus continuing the journey He began last week to Jerusalem. The entire text is tinged with the same journey. A forward look. Jesus had His face set to Jerusalem. And the narrative is moved forward as Jesus and His disciples continue their journey. He has called His disciples to consider the cost of following Him. And in the weeks ahead, we will find as we study these verses that following Jesus comes at a great cost. We come to the point here in this particular text where Jesus will test the resolve of His disciples. You say you want to follow me. You say you're, you're ready to leave house and home and family behind. Will you truly do it? And where Jesus had sent out 12 disciples, his inner circle, a few weeks ago we considered that, now he sends out 72 followers of Christ to go and to tell others about the coming kingdom. Well, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10 if you've not done so already. It's found on page 868 in your pew Bible. So we encourage you to open that up. If you do not have a copy of God's Word that is your own, let me encourage you to take one of those pew Bibles home, read it. It is our gift to you. Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, nor knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there... Your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go on from house to house. Whatever, whatever house you enter, or rather, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you, but Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. 
but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. I'm going to end our reading there. I'll pick up with the following verses when we get to it in the, later in the sermon. But the main idea that Luke has, beginning here in verse 1 and carrying through verse 37, is that the mission given to every Christian is to be heralds of good news of the kingdom of God. That our task as followers of Jesus is to announce the arrival of the king and to usher in his kingdom, not by force, but through surrendered lives to the king of kings. I want us to think this morning about this exhortation to proclaim the gospel and to rest in the results. I asked that question earlier, what is the work of a disciple? A disciple, by very nature, is a disciple maker. That following Jesus means that you help others follow Jesus. Simply put, disciples make disciples. And we make disciples by proclaiming the kingdom of God and resting confidently in the sovereignty of God, that He is sovereign over the results. So if you take notes this morning, I really only have two main points for you to consider. Number one, our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. While what we find in verses 1 through 16 is unique in human history, and many aspects of it are unrepeatable by us, this is not a manual for modern missions. But we see a bit of a blueprint, an aspect of the work of a follower of Jesus. Then, in verses 17 through 37, we see Jesus teaching his disciples to rest confidently in the results. That they have no control over the results. We can't control whether or not people will surrender to Jesus or not. But we ought to rest in the one who does control the results. That God is calling not the wise and the understanding, but the foolish and the lowly. And that will be illustrated through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, first here, look at verses 1 through 16. Our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. We see here in verses 1 through 12 a number of aspects of gospel proclamation. As we consider what the Lord is doing in teaching and instructing His disciples, He's teaching and instructing us about gospel proclamation. And the very first thing we see right out of the gate, is that gospel proclamation is global. It's global. Look with me here at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. He gathered together a group of disciples. Now, Jesus doesn't hear 
gather 24 disciples or 36 disciples or 112 disciples. He gathers together 72 disciples. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you'll, you'll most notably see, or if you have a King James translation, that the number in your Bible is 70. And you might wonder, well, which is it, 70 or 72? Well, this is an example of a scribal addition to the text, to the manuscript, uh, but it, it teaches us the reference is the same. What is the reference? Well, the reason why the scribes edited this verse was because they knew what it referenced. If you go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10, when Noah and his family gets off the ark, there is a, what is known as the table of nations listed there. And lo and behold, there is 70 nations listed in the Hebrew text. But in the Greek text, There is 72 nations listed there, hence the variant that crept into this particular text. But the point remains, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that their mission is to the nation and not merely to the Jews. This is illustrated by Jesus' own behavior. Remember, he began his journey to Jerusalem by going where? Through Samaria a non-Jewish country. And even here in our passage this morning, Jesus makes reference to a Samaritan who is more righteous and holy than even the Jews. We understand that the gospel is not for a particular people, but for all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And our responsibility is to go global with the good news of Jesus. Which by implication means that we are wrong when we withhold the gospel from those who are different than us. So often we develop relationships and communicate with those who look like us and think like us. Friend, this whole community needs the gospel, not just the people who look like you. This is what Jesus is teaching, but also... Another aspect of gospel proclamation is found there in verse 2, and that is prayerful. Notice Jesus says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, notice a number of things here. Number one, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, the disciples have done nothing up to this point to to sow seed that would produce such a plentiful crop. But they're to pray to the one who has been sowing seeds, who has been cultivating the crop. And I want you to look at that verse again and notice whose harvest it really is. It's his harvest. Friend, we are only being invited into what God is already at work doing. One of the things as a church we should be thinking is where is God already at work in our community and why don't we get involved there? This is God's harvest, not our own. And this is why he teaches us to pray. Apart from prayer, we are a helpless people. This is why we give ourselves to pray in our regular gatherings. As I just did a moment ago, that God would bear fruit in our evangelism. 
Friend, you will never be able to win someone over to Jesus apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So pray to the Holy Spirit that conversion would happen. Prayer is essential in our evangelism. Without prayer, it is fruitless. So we see that the gospel is to go global. We ought to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out more workers. And then we see in verse 3 that one other aspect is that it's dangerous. Notice the language that Jesus uses here. He says, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is an awfully bleak picture. All right, I've recruited you, and and I'm going to send you out. And here's the caveat. It's dangerous. There are wolves seeking to destroy you. Lambs are notoriously innocent creatures. They they have no ability to defend themselves. There's nothing they can do. they're, They're vulnerable. These wolves will devour them up. It is a reminder that we are in a dangerous business. That lambs are helpless apart from God's protection. Notice here that we are not to go out as mighty warriors to conquer some unsuspecting village, but to go gentle and lowly as humble beasts of burden. It is true, brothers and sisters, that there is always those in our community, in our own midst, seeking to destroy the people of God. That's why God raises up men like Athanasius. That's why God raises up men who will defend the truth. Why God equips the church with pastors who can defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Friend, the danger of evangelism is all the more evident as we consider the world around us. We live in a free country. It's, often, it's kind of not really dangerous so much for us to, to tell people about Jesus. Perhaps you'll lose some be shamed, some pride will, will be lost. But, but consider in Muslim countries that to be baptized is, is a sentence of execution. To identify with the people of Christ, to identify with Jesus through baptism cost you your head. Or in communist China, where house churches meet secretly because of threat of the communist military bursting through the doors. It is dangerous to follow Jesus. We see also in verse 4 that it, it is an urgent matter. Jesus tells them, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In other words, he, he creates a sense of urgency in these disciples that he's sending. Now, later in Luke 22, he will tell them to take provisions along their way. And so this is a singular type thing, but it is a reminder of the urgency in which we ought to go about evangelism. Do we understand what is at stake? People's souls are at stake, and we sit idly by, uh, simply focused on our own cares and our own enjoyment of life. When, When your neighbor might die of a heart attack this afternoon, and all you can seem to talk about is the cold weather that's going on around you rather than the great good news that Jesus has come to rescue sinners. We see also that gospel proclamation is verbal. This goes without saying, it is somewhat implied in the text, but nevertheless very important, isn't it? That God's chosen means is a verbal message. There in verse 5 and then in verse 9, 
or verse 10 rather, he tells them to open their mouths and say something. No one's going to hear the gospel unless you tell them. And here's what I want you to understand. That God has uniquely placed you in the lives of the people around you to be a messenger of reconciliation. There are people that you know that no one else in this room knows but you. Do you not understand that our sovereign God has placed these individuals in your life so that your mouth would be open with the good news of Jesus? Next, we see that gospel proclamation will be divisive. It will be divisive. We will not always hear celebration. We will not always hear, yes, I want to follow Jesus. We are told that there will be some who reject the message, those who will not receive the message. And Jesus here tells them, this is much. Look there, verse 8, Whoever, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Now this would seem as if an opposite direction for what he gave James and John last week. James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven because the Samaritans rejected Jesus. But here Jesus is commanding them to dust the feet off, dust the, uh, dust, the dust off their feet as a sign of judgment. It is a reminder that we cannot control the wills of men. Some will reject, many will reject. But some will believe. We ought not to grow discouraged in our evangelism simply because someone says no. But rather seek to trust that God's work will be done. We plant the seed. God gives the growth. This is why Jesus will go on even in this section to teach his disciples that evangelism has eternal consequences. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. These are, these are terrifying verses, aren't they? Well, he begins there in verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Like, wow, dang. Sodom, the, the most grotesque city in the Old Testament. I mean, you cannot get more vile than wanting to sexually assault angels. Okay? I mean, this is the, the depth of depravity is the people of Sodom. Of course, even to this day, the word carries over in the English language, sodomites. It's a word of deplor it's a deplorable word and a deplorable town. But Jesus says that it will be worse for the town that rejects Jesus than for Sodom. Well, he lists three other quite famous cities in Israel Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Capernaum. Each of them were areas where Jesus did ministry along and around the Sea of Galilee. Each of these were, were cities along the ministry path of Jesus. It is a reminder to us, isn't it, that proximity to Jesus does not result in salvation. I hear it all the time. Oh, if I could have just seen Jesus in one of these miracles, then I would have believed. If I could just get in my mind's eye what really happened that day, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. In fact, Jesus 
condemned one of his disciples for thinking that way. His, his name was Thomas, and he's got the notorious name Doubting Thomas because he had to physically touch Jesus to believe that he was resurrected. And Jesus said to Thomas, as a warning to everyone listening, blessed are those who believe without seeing. You and I are in a more blessed place because we don't see, but yet we believe. It is a reminder to each and every one of us that there is eternal consequences This language that Jesus is using is that of judgment. You reject Jesus and you die eternally in your sin. Making even reference here to Capernaum going down to Hades, to hell. Look there at verse 16. This is a word of encouragement to you, friend. The one who hears you, hears Jesus. The one who rejects you, rejects Jesus. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus says there finally, and the one who rejects Jesus, rejects the one who sent me. He rejects God himself, the Father. You're doubly done in rejecting a disciple of Jesus. There are consequences to those who reject us and the message we have. We are not to gloat in pride over those who do not repent, but rather, as we'll see in a moment, confidently trust in our sovereign God. But the point remains, do you understand it to be your responsibility to share the gospel? Or do you have in your mind that evangelism is left to a professional you know, that, that traveling evangelist that puts on revivals? Oh, yes, that's the one. I'll give money to him. Or, or I'll give money to international missions, and there evangelism has been done. I will give money to starting a new church. And, oh, there evangelism will be done. I will pay someone to do it. Lord, I just don't want to do it. Friend, if that is what you think, then you are in gross disobedience to Jesus. And I, and I apologize to you in some respects for this. That whoever helped you follow Jesus didn't help you in this particular way. Perhaps you were discipled to think that evangelism was someone else's responsibility and not your own. But, but friend, now you've heard and now you're guilty if you continue to not share the good news of Christ. What does it say about us if we have experienced the greatest news that the world has ever heard and we keep it to ourselves? What does that say about us? It maybe even causes us to to question whether or not we've even truly been saved. Friend, I hope that you see that it is your responsibility before God to winsomely share the good news with those around you. That you have been commissioned by the Lord. You have the authority of Jesus to take the gospel to the nation. This is not reserved for an elite group, but is the ordinary task of the everyday Christian. But what if they say no? What if they reject it? 
What if I never see one convert? Well, what if I'm like William Carey and, and, and go decades without seeing a single convert? What if I'm like Arnim Judson who labored tirelessly traversing back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean just for the hopes of seeing one convert? What if I am like them? What if I too am seen as a failure? Well, that's why your Bible goes on in verse 17. That we are to rest confident in the results. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And to behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out, the two, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, I've included this particular story in this because I think often we misunderstand it, and we'll get to it in just a moment. But it is very much a part of what Jesus is seeking to teach his disciples. Namely, to rest in the confidence in the finished work of Christ and not in their own works. Jesus here in verses 17 through 20 exhorts his disciples to, to rest in the victory and joy of evangelism. 
We're told that the disciples returned rejoicing the fruit that they had witnessed, that they had seen something wonderful, that they got to participate in the saving work of God. And I believe and I'm convinced that the more we do evangelism, the more we will do it because there is such joy in evangelism. To seeing sinners rescued. Oh, friend, how can we claim the name of Christ and not get excited when a sinner repents and believes? Of course, we are told that the angels in heaven rejoice when one who is lost is found. But we see also that there's something deeply spiritual about this. Jesus says there in verse 18 that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, he's not referring to past tense nor future. He's referring to what he witnessed when these souls were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of light. Do you see that as Christians, we have a responsibility to push back darkness? That Jesus wins by surrendered hearts. That's how Satan is destroyed. Of course, Satan will be fully and finally destroyed on the cross of Calvary when Jesus dies and defeats the, the enemy. And now the enemy only has really deception as a tool in his hand for us. But regardless, we see, brothers and sisters, the, the wonderful victory there is in evangelism. That we truly are defeating the, this great enemy. And there's an allusion here even to Genesis 3.15. That, that disciples are treading on serpents. And this was given to Eve as a promise that one of her children would be a, a, a snake crusher. And you and I get to participate in that work as captive souls are freed. But we also see in verses 21 through 24 that Jesus is teaching his disciples to rest in the sovereignty and blessing of evangelism. If you paid attention to any of those verses, you will notice that it is the Father's will that is being done on earth as it is in heaven. He takes up this point particularly God's people learn to rest in the sovereignty and the blessings of evangelism by trusting that God alone is in the results. That God has chosen and in His infinite wisdom to call not the rich and powerful or the wise and understanding, but the least of these. That we did not choose Jesus, but look at verse 22, that He chose us. Look at verse 22 again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So Jesus has complete lordship. And no one knows the Son, that is Jesus, except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. There is an intimacy in the Godhead. That, that God willingly reveals Himself. That we can't go searching for God apart from revelation. And anyone to whom the Son, there it is, chooses to reveal Him. That through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit regenerates dead souls through the preaching of the Gospel. So regeneration doesn't happen apart from proclamation. So don't misunderstand. We need proclamation in order for regeneration. So the Holy Spirit is dependent upon that. But it is a reminder though that He's calling not those who can understand, those who can figure this out. But He's calling those who can't figure it out. 
that are described there in verse 21 as little children. And I know you've been accustomed to thinking that this is like some precious moments verse. Oh, Jesus loves the little children. That is not how a Jew would have heard that phrase. The Jews would have heard dumb kids that don't know any better but cause a bunch of problems. Little children. They're a nuisance. They're a problem. They can't work. They can't make money. They just eat food. They consume things. They're always in the way. They're a nuisance to society. That's how they would have heard that. And Jesus is saying, that's you. That you're the trash of society. That you're the throwaway. That you're unimportant, insignificant. You're nobody. You're a barrier for society to move forward. We wish that you would just get out of the way and let the grown-ups do things. Jesus is saying, yes, little children. Yes, those who who are looked down upon, who seem to be ignorant and uneducated. That's who he calls. The Apostle Paul says the same in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Brothers and sisters, do you see the incredible irony of of all of this mystery in the sovereignty of God? That you and I have received something that the great and powerful of this world can never get their hands on. You might think, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. Amen. Neither am I. I don't have enough money in order to buy my way into God's graces. Amen. Neither do we. I'm not influential enough in society. Think about it. I mean, if you were really in control of everything, if you were the one who was, who was the who is controlling the destiny of men and women, wouldn't you like put it on billboards and signs and and get like the President of the United States to be a Christian and and make him a, a Christian and then he tells everyone they have to be Christians? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Friend, just read church history. Because where Athanasius was living, it was in Constantine's world. And when Constantine rose to power in Rome, a so-called Christian, it was deplorable. Christians in power. Christians in control. It led to the utter demise of the church when Christians were in control. Because they weren't really Christians at all. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to trust that God is in the results. And that is why he concludes with this familiar story we, we think that the story of the Good Samaritan is about teaching us to love our neighbors. That is not at all what this story is about. Jesus is not trying to teach you to be like the Samaritan in this passage. Jesus is proving through this lawyer that they are outside of the salvation that Jesus is bringing. A lawyer was a wise and understanding man. The two men in this particular story 
the priest and the Levite, were men of nobility, men of religious prestige. They were the wise and the understanding. And Jesus here is giving us a vivid illustration that that the gospel is for those who understand themselves not to be any one of these three men, but to be the dead man on the side of the road. Let me prove it to you very quickly. It's in the questions that are asked. Teacher, verse 25, what shall I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Nowhere in Luke's gospel do we find this kind of transition to a new section. Notice it begins, and behold. Luke here is continuing the same thought that he's just begun back in verse 1. He understands that this is a part of what Jesus has been teaching the disciples. They've been telling people about eternal life through Jesus and his work. And the lawyer stood up to test him and say, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes immediately to the motive or the means by which this man thinks he can inherit eternal life. And what is it? Obedience to the law. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not you do the law better. It is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. Is that correct? So Jesus is not teaching that we can inherit eternal life by loving our neighbors better or by loving God more. No, he's summarizing the law. Love God and love people. And every one of us fail in doing that. Jesus is trying to teach this man that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God apart from my atoning work on Calvary. Apart from me, you cannot have eternal life. You cannot do it. That is why, verse 29, the man is desiring to justify himself. You see, this is what we do. We lower the bar so that everyone can overcome the hurdle. Okay, we're struggling in our evangelism. We're not seeing converts. We're not seeing people come to know Jesus. So what do we do? We lower the standards. Oh, you you don't have to believe everything the Bible teaches in order to be a Christian. Uh, you, You don't have to give up all of your sin to become a Christian. If you've got a few things that you particularly like, well, you can keep them. See, this man had lowered the bar on on who and what neighborliness would be. That's what we all do. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you know, that's right, lower the bar, jump over it. But he concludes by saying there in verse 37, you go and do likewise. Jesus actually like raises the bar. He says, ha, try to jump this hurdle. It's a demonstration to us, a vivid illustration that the wise and understanding, those who think they can somehow trick their way into heaven, are not those who Jesus saves. He saves the lowly and the, and the humble. He saves those who are not. And brothers and sisters, I hope this morning that we identify in this so familiar story with that half-dead beaten man that needs mercy. You and I need the mercy of God. And through the cross of Christ, where Jesus dies the death we deserve and is raised to life for our justification, there we meet God's mercy and there alone. 
other world religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, parts of Islam, seek to convert by force. But we do not. We share, we sow seeds, and we rest in God's sovereign plan to save sinners for His glory. I end with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor in London during the early part of the 20th century. And was their custom, they would have evangelistic services. Their Sunday evenings were taken up often with some evangelistic message. And one particular Sunday, Sunday evening, Lloyd-Jones is preaching there in London, and he notices a man up in the balcony, weeping, having a, 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 really a terrible time. He, he's concerned about the man. And was the custom of Lloyd-Jones is after the service, he would go to the parlor of the church. It was kind of like the, the opening little priestway. And there he would wait on people and he would minister to their souls and, and pray over them and counsel them and help them. And he would stay there until the last person came through. And he found it strange that the man who was up there in the balcony, noticeably weeping and, and having this, this terrible emotional response, would turn up in his parlor, but he never found him. It wasn't until the next day, as the two were walking there in the streets of London, that they crossed paths. And Lloyd-Jones confronted him. He says, friend, I, I saw you. you. You clearly were upset. What's going on? And the man responded in frustration and anger towards Lloyd-Jones. He said, you know, if you would have only extended some form of altar call, then I would have repented and believed. If you would have just had some means for me to respond in that moment, then I would have surrendered my life to Jesus. Lloyd-Jones, not missing a beat, responded this. My dear friend, if what happened to you last night does not last for 24 hours, I am not interested in it. If you are not as ready to come with me now as you were last night, then you have not got the right thing, the true thing. Whatever affected you last night was only temporary and passing. You, stu- you still do not see your real need of Christ. Friend, it is a reminder that we ought to trust that God saves through this means. Lloyd-Jones would say it this way, we are to preach the Word, and if we do it properly, there will be a call to decision. Every single one of our sermons that I preach or Pastor Pret preaches or, or Pastor John preached was an invitation extended to repent and believe and to trust. A decision must be made in your soul today. And then, Lloyd-Jones would say, we leave it to the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let us trust that God saves sinners for His glory. Let us rest in that and rest completely for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today. Help us to grow, to know You better, to make much of You, to take this good news to those around us. And, O oh, Father, may we see the harvest come forward. It is Your harvest. It is not our harvest. We simply rejoice in this one truth, that our names are written in heaven, and there we rest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.